Hey, everybody. Welcome to Veritas. It is so exciting for me to see all of the new and old faces here tonight. If you're wondering who I am, uh, my name is Kyle Richter. I'm one of the pastors at The Crossing, the church that we are connected to in town. And specifically, uh, I help lead Veritas. Uh, I've been on staff for about 10 and a half years now, which for some of you, hearing that is a little mind-blowing because I still look like I'm a college student. It's okay, though. I've made peace with my lack of facial hair long ago. But to further prove the fact, uh, fact that I, I am in my 30s, if you're doing the math, uh, here's a picture of my family. I think, yes, there they are. This is from the barbecue the other night. Uh, this is my wife, Noelle. She's also on staff with Veritas part-time. My, my oldest daughter, Lily, in the bottom, uh, Lucy and Jack. And uh, this is a picture of my dog, Chief, um, who ate a corn cob recently and, and cost me $1,600 last week to have it and two and a half feet of his intestines removed. Why be happy when you can have a dog? Okay, but that's enough about me. So um, I wanted to start off tonight by sharing a story that I came across the other day about a church that thousands of people attend in California. You see, as it turns out, thousands of people have been flocking to this church recently because over a period of several months, a, a glory cloud, this is what they call it, has been mysteriously appearing out of nowhere in their worship services. Now, maybe you're wondering, what on earth is a glory cloud, and what does that mean? Well, apparently, during these services, in, in the middle of singing and dancing and crying out to God for him to appear, several times now, a cloud of glittering gold has appeared over people's heads in this room. People have reported finding jewels in their seats, on the aisle, on the floor. Some have left the service claiming that they were glittering, glimmering, shining like Moses after talking to God. Seriously. One person said that during one of these glory cloud experiences, feathers actually began falling from the cloud, which oddly enough, people assumed were angel feathers. Now, this same guy claims that he was watching this happen when all of a sudden, a, a young girl pushed him out of the way, opened her arms, looked up, perched herself under a falling feather, opened her mouth, swallowed it, because that's normal, right? Now, you see, eventually people started filming these things, right, because that's what we do. And uh, these videos, they make their way onto YouTube. And as more and more people start seeing these videos, people have started to notice that there are a few problems going on. First, they notice that this glimmering gold dust that makes up this so-called glory cloud, which supposedly signified God's presence in the room, well, it looked an awful lot like the body glitter that cheerleaders and dancers use when they perform. And second, maybe even more problematic, People started to notice that this glory cloud somehow always had this strange habit of coming into the room right next to the church's HVAC vents. Huh. Now, for most of you, what these people have found out watching these videos is probably not a shocking revelation to you. 
you know the difference because you're, you're smart enough to know the difference between make-believe and reality, the difference between fantasy and fact. And just to be clear, there's no biblical basis for what this church is claiming. Glory clouds aren't real. And if you ever see one, well, it's because someone is pumping body glitter through an air vent. Now, maybe you're wondering, why on earth is he sharing that story? Here's why I share it. Because I think that there's a broader question from it. A broader question from this story that we can apply to Jesus. You see, just like the people that are wondering whether or not the glory cloud is real, so too are many of us, many of us in here tonight, all of us to some degree wondering if Jesus really is who the Bible says he is. In other words, we're asking the question, can Jesus be trusted? Is Jesus worth committing our lives to? Or, or is Christianity just an elaborate hoax? Nothing more than body glitter and air vents designed by someone somewhere to give us some kind of fantastical experience. You see, those questions, they sound silly, but they're important. Some of the most important questions that you guys are going to face and answer both in college and in life. And wherever you currently stand on those questions, and surely in a room this size, there are differing opinions, and that's okay. Regardless, though, of your particular thoughts of Jesus, one thing is undeniable. 2,000 years ago, something happened in history. Something happened in history that changed the world as we know it. Jesus launched the world's largest religion. How did he do it? How did he do it? What does that mean for us See, those are the the kinds of questions that that we're going to seek to answer over the next nine weeks as we go through the book of Acts together. And just to give us a little background, we say book, but, but Acts is really a letter, and it's written by a guy named Luke. And to give you an idea of where we're at in history, Luke wrote Acts about 30 years after Jesus' death, so sometime around 62 A.D., And in many ways, Acts teaches us about the history of the early Christian church, how it began, how it grew. But Luke isn't only a historian, he's a teacher. And through Acts, Luke is going to teach us how Jesus forever changed the world. All right, let's jump in. Picking up verse 1, Acts chapter 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So stop here for a second. Luke starts Acts by saying, in my former book. What's he talking about? Well, the same Luke that wrote Acts wrote the Gospel of Luke, the third book of the New Testament. And so in both the Gospel And in Acts, Luke starts the very first verse by addressing a guy named Theophilus. Who's Theophilus? Well, in the gospel, Luke calls him most excellent Theophilus. That's a title that we see in other places in the Bible reserved for high-ranking Roman officials. And whether Theophilus was some kind of Roman official or not, we know from Luke's gospel that, that Luke is writing to give Theophilus and others like him 
a reliable eyewitness testimony of Jesus' life and ministry. And so notice that key word in this first verse, began. You see, I want us to see that Luke is saying that in his former book, the Gospel of Luke, he taught Theophilus and others what Jesus began. But here in Acts, Luke is going to teach Theophilus, and by implication, he's going to teach us what Jesus is continuing, what Jesus is doing right now. In other words, Acts teaches us that Jesus' work didn't stop with his death and his resurrection. Jesus is still at work. He's at work in Acts. He's at work in history. And he's still at work in our lives right now through the work of the Spirit. Let's pick up in verse 3. After his suffering, referring to Jesus' death, he, Jesus, presented himself to them, the disciples and others, and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So over a a period of 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, Luke tells us that Jesus had to give people many convincing proofs. That's a phrase there. Many convincing proofs that he was alive. Why? Why did Jesus have to do that? Jesus had to do that because he knew that people were asking the question, is Jesus really who he said he was? Or is he just a bunch of body glitter coming through an air vent? You see, it's a fair question, right? One of the things that I've, I, I've heard quite often over the years, especially from, from people that tend to be skeptics of Jesus, is that the Bible can't be trusted because it's, it's written by backwooded, unintelligent, superstitious people. And not only is the Bible written by these kinds of people, it's written for them. And so as the claim goes, anyone that believes Jesus is really who the Bible says he is, is just as unintelligent and foolish as the people writing and the people in the Bible. Maybe that hits a little close to home. Maybe you've heard those claims too. Maybe it's come from a classmate or a professor, a friend, someone in your family. How could you possibly believe that? It's just a bunch of foolishness written by foolish people for foolish people, right? Except, of course, it's not true at all. See, the people in Jesus' day, they weren't blind fools. They didn't believe everything that Jesus said and did. Take the disciples, for example, Jesus' closest friends. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, verse 17, we're told that, that after Jesus died, after he rose from the grave, three days later, he appeared to the disciples, to his friends. And verse 17 of Matthew 28 says that when they saw him, they worship him. But some doubted. Some of Jesus' very friends doubted when Jesus appeared to him. They didn't believe their eyes. Why? Why wouldn't they believe what they were seeing? Well, because as it turns out, the disciples aren't much different from us, actually. They know what we know. Dead people stay dead. Except Jesus didn't. And so Jesus had to continually, it says, prove himself to others because they didn't believe their eyes. Is this real? Or is this just body glitter coming through an air vent? Now, to be fair, the concept of the resurrection, it wasn't just something that these particular people struggled to believe. 
right? Most people at Jesus' time didn't believe. Greeks didn't believe, Romans didn't believe it, even Jews. Many believed that there, there'd be an eventual resurrection, but few, if any, believed that it would happen right then there in front of their very eyes. And so here's what I want us to catch. This is important. Though our times are different, though our lives look very different, people in Jesus' day, his own friends, were just as biased against the belief in the resurrection as modern people, as we tend to be now. And of course, that begs the question. If belief in Jesus' resurrection doesn't come naturally, if it doesn't come easily, even for his closest friends, for the very people that Jesus stood in front of, well, then why do they believe it? Why did they share it? Why did they spread that news? Why did they tell others about it? Think about this for a second. If the disciples made all of this up, right? If they made these stories up, then they obviously knew it was a lie, right? But here's the deal. Those same disciples, most of them went on to suffer. Most of them went on to die because they insisted that Jesus really was who he said he was. Why would the disciples knowingly die for a lie? Why would they sacrifice their lives for something that wasn't true? If that were you, would you do it? Would you die for a lie? Would you give up your life for something you know isn't true? See, in spite of their implicit biases against the resurrection, people in Jesus' day were forced to believe that Jesus had in fact been risen from the grave. Why? Because he really did. He really did rise from the grave. He did what he said he'd do. He was who he said he was. So Tim Keller, he's, a, he's an author, he's a former pastor uh, in, in New York City. He says this, I think it's really good. He, he says, don't let your first question about Christianity be whether it's practical or inspiring or relevant or not. He said, let your first question about Christianity be whether or not it's true. Because it's, if it's true, it will most certainly be relevant. It will most certainly be practical. It will most certainly be fulfilling. And if it's not, it won't. And so if you're sitting here tonight and you're struggling to believe that Jesus really is who he says he is, or if you're sitting here tonight and you just really aren't sure what to think, I want you to know, hear from me, that you are in good company. You see, Jesus' closest friends can relate to you. Many people in this room can relate to you. I've been there. And I want you to know that Veritas is a great place for you to be honest with your thoughts and your struggles. It's okay to be here in this room, in this community of people asking whether or not Christianity is true. That's a safe question here. Get involved in a small group. Ask those questions. Talk to staff. We're here to help. But we want you to know that Jesus isn't body glitter coming through an air vent. Christianity isn't just an inspiring story. It's a true story. How did Jesus change the world? Well, he didn't stay dead. Let's pick up in verse 4. On one occasion, while Jesus was eating with his disciples, he gave them this command. 
He said, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus says to his friends, he says, hey, don't leave, because soon the Holy Spirit is coming. Now, I realize we have lots of questions about what that means, and I get to punt that question to next week. So if you're wondering what that means, come back next week, and we'll talk more about that. For now, though, we're going to pick up in verse 6. Then they, Jesus' disciples, gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So earlier we see that Jesus' friends doubted. Now we see that they're confused. See a trend? Following Jesus isn't always easy. If you're sitting there and you've ever found yourself wondering, thinking, finding that it's difficult to understand your Bible... It's hard to understand what Jesus is saying. I want you to be encouraged because others have too. Even Jesus' closest friends. But what's their confusion? What's it about? Well, here's what it's about. In line with Jewish expectations of their day. The disciples, they're thinking of the kingdom of Israel in nationalistic terms. Meaning they're wanting, expecting the, re- the restoration of a military, of a political kingdom. They're expecting power to drive the Roman armies out so that Israel can be restored and returned to its glory days. But that's not what Jesus has in mind. That's not what Jesus is thinking. Look at his response, verse 7. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them, hid him from their sight. You see, before Jesus ascends, before he leaves, he corrects the disciples' question, their confusion. But he doesn't do so by rejecting it outright. Rather, he assures them that they will indeed receive power. Power from the Holy Spirit. But not in order to triumph over Roman armies. No, he says instead they'll receive power from the Spirit. For what? To be his witnesses throughout the world. You see, God is telling an incredible story in the world, and Jesus is inviting his disciples to play a crucial role in that story by taking his message of salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, lest we think that that would just be an easy thing because Jesus is in front of you standing, telling you just go do it, and you say, okay, yeah, whatever, let's think about what he's actually asking them to do. First, he says, be my witnesses in Jerusalem. The disciples had to be thinking, okay, so, so let me get this straight, Jesus. You mean you want us to go back to the place, the city, among the people that, that murdered you about a month ago? Yeah, that's where I want you to go. Then he says, oh, yeah, and, and move on from there to witness in all of Judea. But if you've read the Gospels, you know that Jesus and his ministry has been constantly rejected throughout Judea. You, you, Jesus, you really, hold on, let me get this. You want us to go there? You, we already know they don't want us. Yeah, I want you to go there. But then he says Samaria. But Jews hated Samaritans. And Samaritans hated Jews. Why? Well, Samaritans, 
we're a racially mixed group of, of partly Jewish and Gentile, non-Jewish ancestry. And so Jews regarded Samaritans as ethnic half-breeds, defiled with Gentile blood and patient, pa- pagan worship practices. But see, the good news of Jesus, it's not reserved for one people group. It's the gospel transcends racial and ethnic barriers. It transcends skin color and language and value and ancestry and the customs of other people groups. Hence, Jesus says, oh yeah, and while you're at it, don't stop in Samaria. Go to the ends of the earth. Here's a a map. I think, yes, good. Uh, Showing the world stage at the time of it might be somewhat difficult to see, maybe not. That top right corner, that's a, it's a blown up section of Israel at the time. You can see Jerusalem, you can see Judea, you can see Samaria to the north. Now, now looking at that map, I want you to imagine Jesus' disciples hear Jesus saying to them, I want you to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Are you kidding me, Jesus? We've never even left Israel, and you want us to go all the way there? How on earth do you expect us to do that? And Jesus says, I'll give you power. You'll have the Spirit. See, I want us to realize that that the disciples, they weren't particularly impressive people. They oftentimes had fickle faith. They struggled with doubts. They had fears and insecurities. They were sometimes proud and self-centered. But God, in his grace and in his mercy and wisdom, he sends the Spirit to them and uses them. He uses them to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, it's interesting Because if you're like me, you tend to hear that phrase, to the ends of the earth, and and immediately we start thinking what? We, We start thinking out there, right? That's the ends of the earth. But you see, you know what you don't see on that map? The United States. You know what you don't see on that map? Missouri, Columbia, Mizzou. You see, to Luke's first century audience, we are the ends of the earth. We are the ends of the earth. When we read Acts 1, 8, and we come across to the ends of the earth, we are to that audience the ends of the earth. Have you ever thought about that? How did the gospel spread from Jerusalem to this very auditorium at the University of Missouri? How did it go from there to here? Here's a stab. I'm going to go quick. might take a bit. 50 days after Jesus' death and resurrection, the Apostle Peter, he preaches a sermon at Pentecost. This is what we're talking about next week. And Luke tells us that as a result of Peter's sermon, 3,000 people believe and were baptized. Not long after that, a man named Stephen is stoned to death because of his faithfulness to Jesus. Stephen has become known in history as the first Christian martyr. Just a short time later, in in 33 or 34 AD, Saul, a man that had previously persecuted the church, he's converted to Christianity on the road to Damascus. Saul becomes known as Paul, who many of you know went on to write a majority of our New Testament. In 42 AD, the apostle Mark goes to Egypt. Around 46 AD, Paul sets out with Barnabas on the first of three missionary journeys. 
By 80 AD, the first Christians in France are reported. By 100 AD, Christians are reported for the first time in Algeria and Sri Lanka. By 150, the gospel is spread to Portugal and Morocco. By 174, the first Christians in Austria are reported. By 280 AD, the first rural churches in northern Italy are begun. 328, the gospel reaches Ethiopia. By 350 AD, 32 million people in the world claim to follow Jesus Christ. See, the gospel is spreading to the ends of the earth. 432 AD, a former slave, a guy named Patrick, he heads back to Ireland to the very people that enslaved him to share the gospel with him. We celebrate him on St. Patrick's Day. 596, Pope Gregory I sends Augustine of Canterbury, not the, the theologian, another guy, and a team of missionaries to England. 635, the first Christian missionaries arrive in China. 740, Irish monks bring the gospel to Iceland. 900 AD, missionaries reach Norway. By 1200 AD, the Bible is available in 2200 different languages. The gospel is spreading to the ends of the earth. 1491, missionaries arrive in the African Congo. A few years later, the first Christians are reported in Kenya. Meanwhile, in Spain, Pope Alexander VI wanted to send missionaries to the New World, and as a result, Christopher Columbus takes Catholic priests with him on his second journey to the Americas. 1531, Franciscan Juan de Padilla started mission work in Mexico City. 1550, John Calvin sends French Protestants to reach Brazil. 1554, the first converts to Christianity in Thailand are reported. In 1640, the Southampton Long Island Congregation forms the oldest Presbyterian church in the United States. 1683, an Irishman named Francis McAmey comes to the United States and becomes known as the father of Presbyterianism. 1671, Quaker missionaries reach the Carolinas. In 1743, David Brainerd begins his ministry to the North American Indians. See, the gospel is spreading to the ends of the earth. It's transcending race, ethnicity. Among the earliest settlers in Missouri is a man named Stephen Hempstead. Hempstead saw the spiritually needy conditions of Missourians and sent appeals to the Connecticut Missionary Society. And in 1816, the Connecticut Missionary Society sends Salmon Giddings. Giddings went on to plant 12 churches in the St. Louis area. In the 1830s and 40s, Missouri experienced a spiritual revival. And in 1844, out of that revival, Fourth Presbyterian Church in St. Louis began. That church later changed its name to Central Presbyterian Church. Over the next hundred years, Central Presbyterian Church begins many other churches, one of which was Green Tree Community Church in Kirkwood, Missouri. It began in 1997. And in 2000, Central Pres and Green Tree team up to plant a church here in Columbia called The Crossing. The fall of 2006, sensing a need for a different kind of college ministry at the University of Missouri, The Crossing starts Veritas, and we held our very first meeting right here in this auditorium. You see, 2,000 years ago, Jesus told a group of unimpressive people to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And here we are in 2018 at the University of Missouri singing earlier to each other that Jesus died, that he rose, that he's coming back again. And it doesn't stop here. 
It doesn't stop in this auditorium. See, Jesus invited his disciples into a story far greater than themselves, and he gave them a crucial part to play. He's doing the same thing for us here tonight. So what's it going to look like for you this semester? What's it going to look like for you this year to play a part in Jesus' story? Where is God calling you to be a witness? What are the difficult places? Where are the difficult places for you to go? Who are the difficult people for you to be around? If you're a Christian, what holds you back from sharing your faith? Fear? Doubt? Insecurities? Social pressures? Some of you might know the name Penn Jillette. Penn Jillette. He's one half of the Penn and Teller duo. They're magicians, entertainers. They've been performing together since the 1970s. Penn Jillette, in particular, is also known for his outspoken views against Christianity. He's a staunch atheist and often antagonistic to the claims of Christianity and followers of Jesus. Several years ago, though, he said something that I've never forgotten. We're going to watch a video in a second. The quality's really bad. It's a weird video. But, but pay attention. Listen to what he has to say. Okay, let's watch. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that... Uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. Did you catch what he said? I, I'm going to say it again because I think it's powerful. He said, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? See, that's coming from an atheist. As the music team comes up, I, I want you to ask yourself, what kind of witnesses are you? What holds you back? What, what kind of witness do you want to be this semester, this year? See, we here at Veritas, we believe that we have good news to share. Good news of a good Savior who calls us to himself and gives us meaning and significance and purpose in the world unlike anything or anyone else can. We believe that Jesus is telling an incredible story in the world and our hope is that Veritas is a community of people committed to living that story out together. See, we know that it's not going to be perfect. We know that it's not simple. We know that it's not always going to be pretty. We're not pretending that it is. But we are absolutely convinced that once you become a part of Jesus' true story, you'll never be the same. 
See, Jesus forever changed the world because he didn't stay dead. Jesus isn't body glitter coming through an air vent. He's not a gimmick. He's not a hoax. He really is who he said he was, and he's inviting you into his mission to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. That's the story that he's inviting you into. What part are you going to play?